All right. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Eaglebrook Church. Really good to have you with us today. If you're at one of our campuses or if you're watching this message online someplace around the world, I've got good news and bad news for you. Students, for most of you, school starts in just a few weeks. That's the bad news. Parents, school starts in just a few weeks. That's the good news uh, and bad news for you today. Now, with the start of school comes our fall kickoff. And every year, the weekend after Labor Day, we kind of kick off a brand new series. And this year, it's called Made for More. Because believe it or not, God has more for your life than just the daily routine of get up, go to work, run some errands, and watch some TV. Too many people that I talk to these days are going through life directionless. And it's because they don't know their God-given purpose. It's going to be a great series for everyone who goes to this church. It's also going to be a great series for everybody who doesn't currently go to this church. I mean, just think about your family members and your neighbors and coworkers and friends, regardless of what they believe about Jesus or the Bible. I'll bet they would love to know what God's purpose is for their life, why God put them on planet Earth. But how are they going to hear about that unless someone invites them to that series, which is what the series that we're in right now has been all about? It's called the invitation because God invites every single human being into a relationship with himself. The problem is we live in a culture right now that's becoming more and more resistant to spiritual conversations. For example, the popular TV show Downton Abbey is set in the aristocratic period of the early 20th century. Now, for those of you that watch that show on a regular basis, let me ask you, have you ever seen them pray on that show? The answer is you haven't. And that was actually intentional. Even though they lived in a time period when they absolutely would have said grace before dinner, the executives went to the producers of that show and they said, we want you to leave religion completely out of it. We know they would have said grace before dinner. So every time the Crowley family sat down to eat, they would pick the thing up partway through dinner. They would never show them sitting down to start the meal because then they would have had to show them saying grace. Now, you probably didn't notice that, but it was intentional. Here's what this means. It means that young people growing up in the world today are not just going to hear about a relationship with Christ. They're not just going to turn on the TV or listen to their favorite pop song and go, oh, Jesus Christ died for my sins and he loves me and wants a relationship with me. They're not just going to hear about that. The only way they're going to hear about it is if someone tells them, if someone reaches out to them. Our family was at Wyzetta Beach off of Lake Minnetonka just a few weeks ago. And at 1230, the lifeguard came out on the megaphone and she announced, she said, it's 1230, everybody needs to get out of the water. Now, based on the way she said it, I thought it was a normally scheduled safety break. You know, a chance for the lifeguard, go grab some food, use the bathroom, that sort of thing. I was excited because I had been playing with my kids all morning, and I just wanted to sit down on the beach, read my book, and relax. But just as I sat down to read my book, the lifeguard came over, and she announced to this crowd of about 50 to 100 adults standing there, she said, we may have a missing swimmer, this little six-year-old boy named Joey. And she said, we need every able-bodied adult who can swim to come with us into the lake and help us to look. I'm not kidding you, one person stood up, and it wasn't me. Now, in my defense, 
she didn't say it with a whole lot of urgency. You know, it wasn't like, we have a missing swimmer. It was like, we have a missing swimmer. His name is Joey. And so I could just tell, like, you know what? He's at the snack bar. Just look around a little bit for him. But then I had two thoughts within a span of about three or four seconds, and both of them were bad thoughts. The first thought was, you guys are the lifeguards. I mean, come on, there's three of you lifeguards here. You've been trained for this kind of thing. Like, this is what you go to classes and train for. I don't know what I'm doing, okay? So you go do it. The second thought was even a little bit worse. I'm embarrassed to share with you that the second thought was, I just sat down. I mean, I just sat down to relax and read my book, and now I got to get back up and go into this lake. Thankfully, those two thoughts were out of my brain in about three seconds. And my third thought was, Jason, you have a five-year-old son. And if he was missing, what would you think about the adults who just stood there on the shoreline and watched? I thought, you have a responsibility as a human being to put down your book and go into that lake. And so I did. I grabbed my kids' goggles, and I started to swim back and forth with these other adults in the lake. Now, thankfully, little Joey had come to the beach with his grandparents that day, and at some point during his time in the lake, he decided he didn't like the lake. It's kind of icky water. He would rather go across the street to his grandparents' condominium and swim in their pool. So without telling anybody... This six-year-old kid crosses Lake Street, walks over, unlatches the, the hinge, goes in and starts swimming in the pool by himself. I later saw little six-year-old Joey back at the lake, sucking on a Capri Sun and eating fruit snacks like nothing had happened. His grandparents needed a nap. I mean, you could just tell this was not what they signed up for. But when I got back to my book that day, I was struck by the spiritual analogy of what had just taken place. You see, as a pastor, there are times when I'll get up in front of a group of people and I'll say, everyone, there's lost people out there and we need to rescue them. We need to help them find God. And sometimes I get the impression that people are looking at me and they're going, well, you're the pastor. <laughs> you, you go do it. I mean, you're, you're the one who's been to seminary. You're the one who's trained for this. I, I don't know what I'm doing. You're the spiritual lifeguard. You go do it. Or if I could make it even more personal, there are times when I've had the chance to talk to another person about Jesus or faith, and I've just bailed. And you say, well, that's strange because you're a pastor. I thought you would want to talk about those things. Sometimes I don't. I mean, I was on vacation a few weeks ago and this guy came up and he had these questions about the tribulation and the rapture and when is all that going to happen? I'm like, I'm on vacation. If you want to talk about the twins playoff chances, let's talk about that. But I didn't want to talk about the rapture in that moment. And it's not just when I'm on vacation. There are times when I just want to be read my book and be left alone. There are times when I know this other person might disagree with me about faith and I'd rather not have that conversation. It's a little uncomfortable and awkward. But here's my question. What responsibility do you and I have to reach people for Christ? That if there is a heaven and there is a hell, if there are people out there who are lost and hopeless, then is it okay for us just to turn a blind eye? And go back to reading our book or our comfortable life. 
If there was a person who was physically missing, we would move heaven and earth to find them. Why then wouldn't we do the same for somebody who's spiritually missing? God would move heaven and earth, that is. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And even if you're not a person who reads the Bible very much, I'm guessing you're going to recognize this story. It's the story of the prodigal son. We'll pick things up in verse 11. Here's what Jesus says. He said, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now instead of waiting until you die. Now, on the surface of things, this seems like kind of a reasonable request, doesn't it? I mean, why don't you just give me the money now? I don't have to wait for you to die. I can spend the money now however I want. It seems pretty reasonable, except for the fact that in the first century, this was about the most offensive thing you could say to your dad. Basically, what he was telling him is this. You're as good as dead to me. Dad, I don't care about you. All I care about is the inheritance. And once I get that, I'm out of here. And you'll never see me again. The father agrees. He gives the son his inheritance. It says this. It says a few days later, the younger son packed all of his belongings and took a trip to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money on wild living. So the younger son takes off for Vegas. And he's like, Vegas, make it rain. And he's just wasting all of his money on wild living. And then one day the money runs out. And so he takes a job feeding pigs. And one day as he's feeding these pigs, he thinks, you know what? These pigs are eating better than I am. And it must have been kind of an epiphany moment for him because look at what it says in the next verse. It says, when he finally came to his senses. Let me ask you, have you ever had a time in your life when you finally came to your senses? When I was in college, I had a girlfriend break up with me because we got in a huge fight. And I was yelling at her and swearing at her. And the next night, my parents drove me back up to college. And we were at a Ciotti's restaurant in St. Cloud when all of a sudden this high school guy stands up and in the middle of the restaurant, he starts to yell and swear at his girlfriend. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And as I sat there and as I watched this, I finally came to my senses. I thought, Jason, that's you. And it's ugly. It's not who you want to be. And that night I went back to my dorm room and for the first time in my life, I said, God, would you forgive me of my sin? And I put my faith in Christ. I finally came to my senses. There might be some of us here today and God is pleading with you right now. And he's going, would you finally come to your senses? That for some of you, your anger is out of control. It really is. And it's pushing away your spouse and your kids and the people that you love and you care about the most. For some of you, it's a drinking problem. And your drinking is just out of control right now. And you don't want to admit it to anybody else, but you know that this is true in your heart. And you can see where this is going. You can see how this is pushing away the people that you love the most. And God is just pleading with you right now. Would you finally come to your senses? You know, maybe you're about to make a purchase that's out of your price range. Or you're about to date somebody who's not a believer and God is going, hey, I just want you to finally come to your senses. 
But maybe you feel a little bit like this younger son did. Because look at what it says in the next verse. He says this, he says, I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. I wonder how many of us here today don't feel worthy of the father's love. That there's some sin or mistake or failure or lifestyle in your past that causes you to look at God and think, you know what? There's no way he could ever love me. I got an email from a girl recently. And she said, you know, I, I love the idea of God's grace. Love the idea of everything that God has to offer. But I couldn't get it even if I tried. God hates me. What a sad statement. I don't know what this girl has done or what's been done to her that makes her feel that way, but maybe you can relate. Maybe you say, you know what? I would love to have a relationship with God. I would love for him to receive me into his life as his son or as his daughter, but, but you don't understand. I am not worthy of his love. And if that's you, I want you to feel the power in this next verse. Because here's what it says. It says, but while the boy was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Friends, God is not running away from you today. God is running towards you. God is always running towards lost, hurting, or hopeless people. We don't necessarily want to run towards them. It's our natural inclination to kind of run away from people who might be lost or hurting or different than us in some way. But God says, I am going to run towards lost people. There is nothing I care about more on this earth. And what's interesting about this story is that, again, in the first century, important men did not run. That would have been a shocking part of Jesus' story. I was at a conference one time, and I was supposed to have lunch with this well-known pastor, and I was standing next to the friend of mine who had set up this meeting. And this well-known pastor had just gotten done speaking at this conference in front of thousands of people. And he came around the corner and you could tell he was rather anxious for lunch. You know, he was walking rather briskly. And there was this other man, a grown man, who was like running alongside him. And he was trying to like ask him a couple questions and maybe sign something. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking... I am never running alongside some dude. I'm not doing it for Justin Bieber. I'm not doing it for Denzel Washington. I might do it for Ricky Rubio, and I would for Steph Curry. Okay, I definitely would run next to him. But here's my point. In the first century, important men, they didn't run. And if you couldn't tell already, the father in this story represents God. In other words, God doesn't care what other people think. He's not embarrassed by his love for you. He would run to you today, even if you have offended him or left him, he would run to you and he wants to show you mercy that you do not deserve. In his book, Grace is Greater, author Kyle Eidelman tells a story about a time that he and his wife were vacationing in Destin, Florida. And they were supposed to be out of their condo by 10 o'clock. And at 10.05, 10 
they were still kind of running around trying to complete the checklist of what you needed to do before you left. You take the sheets off the bed, you need to start the dishwasher, that kind of thing. Well, at 10.05, this cleaning guy came up and he goes, it's 10 o'clock, you guys are supposed to be out of here. And so Eidelman and his wife, they apologized, they grabbed their stuff, and they started to make their way from the third floor condo down to their car in the parking lot. But as they reached their car, this cleaning guy came out on the third floor balcony and he yelled down to them. He goes, hey, thanks for starting the dishwasher. It's only a few bleeping things we ask you to do and you couldn't even bleep and push the button. And this is where I really start to like the story because I'm drawn to stories of pastors who don't respond the way they should. I just get a kick out of that. Because some people think that pastors wake up in the morning and put on their angelic underpants. And, whoo, you know, bless you, sister. Hi, brother. Good morning. And, yeah, thank you. I don't own a pair of those pants. And I don't think that Eidelman owns them either because he looked up at this guy and he goes, oh, so sorry you had to push the button. That must have been exhausting to push the button. And then he got into his car as the guy continued to rain swear words down on him. Now, this is where the story should have ended. But Eidelman's sitting in his car and he's just steaming. And so he turns to his wife and he goes, I'm going back up there. He goes, that guy needs to hear some hard truth. And so he gets out of his car and he hears his wife go, say a quick prayer on your way up. <laughs> Holy Spirit speaking in that moment. He said by he got, the time he got to the first floor, he said he was embarrassed by what he was doing. By the time he got to the second floor, he was asking God to forgive him. And by the time he got to the third floor, he was looking in his wallet for a tip but all he had was a hundred dollar bill. So he walks into this man, he approaches him and he says, Hey, I just need to apologize to you. He said, it must be so hard to come in and clean up for people who don't even do the little things you ask them. And so I want to give you this as a way of saying sorry. And for your extra work. And he handed him the hundred dollar bill. And the guy goes, you bleepity bleep. No, I'm kidding. That, that, that would have been a terrible story. It never would have made his book. <laughs> Thankfully, for the sake of his book, the, the guy's eyes started to tear up. And can you just imagine this hard-hearted, vulgar man who may have been far from God? We don't necessarily know. But he starts to tear up, and all he can say is, well, I wasn't expecting that. And then Eidelman started to tear up, and he said he wanted to hug the guy, but he played it cool and just you know, shook his hand as he left. Here's my question for you. How do you treat people who are clearly far from God? How do you treat people who, who might be different from you in some way? The answer is you love them. You show them mercy that they don't deserve. Because the truth is every single one of us at one point or another in our life, we're the one who has cursed God. You say, oh, I didn't curse God. I don't remember ever doing that. At some point in each of our lives, we have looked at God and we have said, you know what? I don't care what you say. 
I don't care what the Bible says about this issue. I'm just going to do it because it feels good and it's what I want to do. And basically what we said was, curse you, God. And how did God respond to us in that situation? We cursed God and he gave us a $100 bill. We left God and he ran after us. He showed us mercy that we did not deserve. In fact, look at how Jesus kind of wraps this story up or this part of the story. He says, his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost but now he is found. So the party began. I want you to picture this for a moment because some of us here are parents and I've seen many times very godly parents who love Jesus and they have kids who walk away from their faith. And when that happens, oftentimes those parents question themselves and they think, well, what did I do wrong? And the answer is sometimes you didn't do anything wrong. But your son or daughter just made a decision to walk away from God. But I have seen parents in those situations pray. And they keep loving. And they send the occasional text message with a Bible verse or maybe a podcast of a sermon. And they say, hey, I was just thinking about you today. I thought maybe you'd want to listen to this. Or I thought maybe this verse could encourage you. And then one day that parent looks up. And they see their son or their daughter. And they're coming home. And they're coming back to God. And what was once lost has now been found. And let me tell you, when that happens, there is a party in that house. Jesus says that when that happens, not only is there a party in that house, but there is a party in heaven. That when one person recognizes their sin and believes in Jesus Christ, a party breaks out. And God says that each of us has the opportunity to be a heavenly party starter. My wife was at the grocery store recently, and she saw this woman who seemed rather stressed out. And she could kind of tell because this woman snapped at her husband. She goes, no, not that celery, that celery. Side note, I didn't know there were different kinds of celery. Seems like it's difficult to screw that one up, but apparently he screwed it up big time and she let him know about it. And so my wife just kind of made an observation that she had a, a suitcase underneath her shopping cart and that was, you know, kind of abnormal. And friends, sometimes that's all you need to do. You need an observation to get you into a conversation. Sometimes people say, well, I, don't, I just don't know how to bring up spiritual things. And, or they think, you know, I need to walk up to someone and go, if you died tomorrow, are you going to heaven or hell? Answer it right now. And you're like, mm. and, and oftentimes all you need is just a simple observation that will get you into a conversation. So Sarah said, oh, are you traveling? I, I noticed that suitcase. And this woman said, no, we're, we're not. But we just don't have a car. And so we take our suitcase to the grocery store, fill it up with food, and then that's how we get it home. Sarah said, well, where do you live? And this woman said, Anoka. Well, at that point, there's bells going off in my wife's brain. Because we had just opened a campus in Anoka like two weeks before this. And so she goes, have you ever heard of Eaglebrook Church? 
And this woman's like, yeah, I have. I've heard great things. They, they just opened by my house and I really want to go. But we don't have a ride. And so Sarah said, well, why don't you call the church office and, and see if maybe someone could come and pick you up? And, and this woman just lit up. And she said, do you think someone would do that? Now, I don't know if that woman is in Anoka today. I, I really hope that she is. Because I believe that God noticed her. And God saw the stress and the hardship that she was going through in life. And God sent someone to point her in the right direction. Friends, that's all it takes. You just got to make an observation. Notice people. And then you got to ask a good question. And then you've got to point them in the right direction. You've got to point them towards God. This is the heartbeat of our church. It's why we pray and we give and we plan worship services that we hope will inspire people. It's why we build buildings and children's spaces that are welcoming to people who think that church is boring and God is irrelevant. In fact, sometimes we'll have somebody bring a friend or a family member to church and it's, it's been a long time, right? It's one of those people that, you know, you, you've been praying for them for three years. You've invited them 10 times. They've always said no. And sometimes they'll pull Bob or me aside before a service and they'll go, that's my dad. And I've been praying for him for five years to come to church and I've invited him like 10 times. He's never come before. He's finally here this weekend. And then they'll look at us and go, so don't you screw it up. <laughs> and we try really hard not to. In fact, with that in mind, as I mentioned, the weekend after Labor Day, we are kicking off a brand new series called Made for More. And I want to challenge every person here today to think about who is one person in your life, who is one person in your life that you could invite to that series. One person, you just start right now praying and asking God, give me the opportunity to invite that person. Because can you imagine what would happen if each of us just brought one person and a few of them met Jesus Christ? There would be a party in heaven like you have never seen before. I want to show you the story of Aaron Dahl. Aaron's been a part of our worship team for a couple of years now. And before that, he was a prodigal son. He's living the life that Jesus describes in that story. But as you watch this story, I want you to think about those people in your own life who they just seem impossible. They seem lost and it seems like they're never going to come to faith in Christ. And I want you to be reminded that nothing is impossible with God. And that lost people can be found. We would move heaven and earth to find someone who is physically lost. Let's do the same for someone who's spiritually lost as well. Take a look. Oh, man. I've loved music my whole life and just loved that feeling of singing a song and to be a part of it. But I didn't really realize the passion that I had for music until I got my first guitar and started to just write songs and just learned to be creative and it was just my escape and my way to channel my emotion. The first band I was in was when I was 19 and I've been in four more rock bands since then. The energy of a live show, there's nothing that compares to that and just the rush of emotion and how you just let the music take over. 
and the endorphins kick in and you relive the moments in your head that you're writing about, that I'm singing about, and to feed off the crowd and to hear them sing lyrics that are coming from the depths of my heart, like there's just nothing, nothing like it. Well, my family had gone to church our whole lives growing up. I'd say till about high school is when we kind of tapered off with church and it was just, you know, once a month kind of thing and then once every couple months. My dad had always said when I was living in his house, it was his rules. And so and I remember I was just so fed up with my dad and I left and went to a friend's house and I said, I'm staying here. I think part of me craved the freedom just because I hadn't experienced it fully for myself and I'd always had someone else making my choices for me and my parents telling me what to do and where to be and once I was out on my own it was like this is this is awesome like I don't have to listen to anybody I can make my own choices and it was great but at the same time it was detrimental Being in an original rock band, it's almost inevitable that you're gonna be in the bar scene or be around alcohol. And eventually, it, for me, it overtook the music. It was a lot of partying, a lot of nightclubs, a lot of bar hopping. And then before I know it, I'm there, you know, downtown in that scene four nights a week until it was almost an everyday thing. And I started doing things that I always told myself I'd never do in that. I would look back on myself and say, did I really do that? Because I'd, sometimes I'd be so blacked out, drunk, that my friends would have to tell me, oh man, you were bad, you know, and I just didn't have any realization of who I was when I was like that. It was kind of a gradual fade. Just lots of nights on the street, lots of loneliness, I guess. It was all about me and the drink, and it killed everything. It, um, Everybody that I loved and that I was close to, I would just say the most hurtful things to. And um, yeah, I messed up and I still haven't regained a lot of those friendships. I don't feel like I ever lost that connection with, with God. That's what I was thinking, I, that I never had dismissed him purposely. It's just that I felt like the devil just slowly creeped in enough and played this warm character to slowly walk me away until I was completely lost. And I've been so far away from God and from my family and from my own morals that it took a near-death experience to finally wake me up. Uh, so it was July 28th, 2007. I spent the day drinking and I was blacking in and out of consciousness. And I remember running across the street to get into this bar. And I remember the security guy yelling at me. And next thing I know, I'm getting tackled and someone's holding me down. And I woke up the next morning in a hospital in just black and blue and IVs in my arm. And the nurse enters the room and says, you had a 10% chance to survive last night. And I completely had no idea how I got there. Things had to change. I knew that there may not be another chance, you know, that I had walked the thin line for too long. I just said, 
I need to surrender my life. I'm totally out of control, I'm lost. And I remember just falling down on the floor in my dad's room, just praying for God to come back in my life. And I just felt like a hot wave coming over me and everything had been let go. I know I didn't deserve God's mercy. I didn't deserve any kind of compassion or love, but it was more than that. It was an offer of a new life and a new chance to be forgiven, and to experience freedom and peace again, and to just walk in his path. To look back on myself 10 years ago and say, here's a guy that's completely lost, completely a slave to alcohol, and to look at where I am now completely blows my mind. I have three beautiful boys, beautiful wife, and I am happy. I'm blessed to be doing music for a different reason other than for my own self. It's for God's glory and not mine. And I have sobriety, and I realize that everything that I went through in the past is for a purpose. It's to help others that have gone through similar situations that feel like it's hopeless, to hang in there. God has a plan, and it may not make any sense to you, but it will, it will soon.
relive all that experience is tough. I'm a visual person and to go back and just see who I was then is difficult even to see now. And the thing is, none of that would be possible without God. I was so far gone, so lost. If I were to continue down the path that I was on, I'd be in jail or I'd be dead. To be standing here worshiping God with this amazing church is just so humbling. But I know there's a lot of people that might be feeling lost, like they don't have a plan, that they're going through life purposeless. I can assure you that if you put your faith in Christ 100%, God doesn't always want 25%. He doesn't want 85%. He needs all of us. Give all of our problems to God. Let him take it and see the miracles that he can work in your life. Maybe there's someone, a family member, someone you're close to who's been struggling for years. Pick up the phone. Pray for a creative way to reach out to them, to get them to come to church, to know God. Because the thing is, it's so powerful. One interaction can change their life for eternity. You never know. Are we going to be bold and step out? Or are we going to stay quiet in the shadows? It's your choice. At all campuses, let's pray together, and then we'll be dismissed. Dear Lord, we stand here right now and we recognize just how majestic, how loving and forgiving of a God you are. As humans, we fall short every day, sometimes in gigantic ways, in small ways. But the thing is, you forgive us. You offer us a second chance. A second chance at life, at freedom, salvation. God, this life goes by in a blink of an eye. Help us not to take it for granted. It could be gone in an instant. Help us to find our purpose, to find our passion, to pursue others, to just put an invitation for them to know you and to share the love that you have for so many. We love you, and it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, have a great day. Thanks for singing.